Hey, welcome to the second century of More Than Bread, episode 101. We're starting the second century. My name is Dan, and I'm your host. Way back when I when I started episode number one. Okay, it wasn't even a year and a half ago, but 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 it feels like a bit, okay? I I wasn't really sure where it would lead, but but here we are. So welcome to More Than Bread. This is a podcast that that really primarily is focused on scripture because we need more than bread, more than physical sustenance, more than stuff, more than success, even more than friends to thrive. We need every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we find that in scripture. That's why we call it the word. So this podcast might occasionally delve into commentary and current events. You will hear some of my favorite stories, personal and otherwise, as illustrations of scripture. And at times you'll get at least a hint of who I am, my family, but but really at the heart of this podcast is a value for Scripture, for the Bible, for the Word of God. There's so much good in the Word. Immersing ourselves consistently in the Word, saturating our hearts, minds, and souls with the Word provides so much good. There's stuff to learn and process, but even more, it's an opportunity for the God who spoke the world into creation. It, it's an opportunity for God to speak into our now, our present day, our, our, our current moment, our, our life. So so let, let's dive in. We are nearing the finish line for the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to read Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20 from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. Very early in the morning. This is after, you know, an all-night kangaroo court at Caiaphas' house. We're, we're kind of moving on. Very early in the morning, verse 15, the leading priests, elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, they met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, my words, you just need to realize, even, even if the Jewish people condemned Jesus to death, they, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't kill Jesus without without the Roman government saying yes, or without actually the Roman government doing it. They didn't have the authority because the the people of Israel were a people who had been taken over by the Roman government. So so they're taking Jesus to Pilate because of that. And Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked? For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged, whipped with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. 
The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him. They spit on him. They dropped to their knees in mock worship, and when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified. Crucified. You know, it's it's kind of amazing. Think, Think for a moment how a cross... An instrument of torture and death has been made into the has made it into the the mainstream of the world. I mean, it may be the most famous, the most well known logo of all time, most broadly known, most longest, <laughs> from from tattoos to jewelry, from huge monuments that tower over cities to a a tracing in the air over a forehead or a heart, from works of art to a form scratched on the walls of catacombs, the caves were persecuted Christians hid. It's all over. You see it on churches, t-shirts, and cemetery tombstones. It it hangs from necks as gold jewelry, and it's inked in blue on people. I, I bet it's hard to go through a day without seeing at least one. And, and in a sense, this is the ages-old logo of the church. <laughs> the cross is the brand of the untamed Jesus and all those who follow him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I don't know. Some might say Christianity is too obsessed with Christ crucified, too focused on his death. Why can't you focus on Jesus' teaching and his good deeds? Why so much focus on his death? Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, of the biographies I have read, few devote more than 10% of their pages to the subject's death, including biographies of men like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, who died violent and politically significant deaths. The Gospels, though, devote nearly a third of their length to the climactic last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Yancey writes, saw death as the central mystery of Jesus. Paul, the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament outside of the Gospels, was no different. In his letter to the church in the city of Corinth, he wrote, the Jews ask for a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom, but all I'm going to talk about is Christ crucified. I mean, just ponder this for a moment. Open your eyes to the first days of our movement, the church. Take your heart back to Christ crucified, Jesus And Jesus was a marked man, and nowhere do we see the marks of Jesus more than in those final days. Everywhere he went, he was marked. He was marked by the betrayal of friends. He was marked physically in a a way that caused people to turn their heads away. He was marked by nail prints and a cross, marks that he would never lose, marked for life, marked for death. Long ago, thousands of years before it even happened, the prophet Isaiah was given by God a glimpse of the marks of Jesus. And here's what he wrote in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. He wrote, looking forward, he described it. He wrote, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. There was nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, 
acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. When he went by, he was despised, and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins, but he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped, and we were healed. It's an incredible picture, this untamed Jesus. Nothing beautiful or majestic in his parents. Powerless, humiliated, despised, rejected, ragged. Isaiah writes, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is our brand, the crucified Christ. And I just, I can't help but pondering how odd, how insanely odd it is that the crucifixion would be our brand, that a cross would be our logo. I mean, who in the world would choose a cross? Now, today, we've, we've sanitized the cross and made it into a geometric shape that holds diamonds and hangs around our necks. We've, we're surrounded by crosses, silver and sanitized. But, but to really understand this untamed Jesus, we, we have to regain our vision of the cross as it was before it became our logo. <laughs> I mean, the cross was nothing more, nothing less than a way to kill people. Crucifixion, which probably began with the Persians, was perfected by the Romans as a form of torture. It was designed to produce the slowest death with maximal pain and suffering. It was one of the most humiliating and cruel forms of execution. So here's Jesus. After an all-night king grew court at Caiaphas' house, Jesus has taken a Pilate. Pilate ends up offering Jesus to the crowd because he couldn't find a reason to crucify him. But the crowd yelled loud, crucify him. So he had Jesus flogged, handed over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, the praetorium, and they called together a company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And over and over again, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him. They ridiculed him, mocking him with fake worship. And then they led him to the cross for crucifixion. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word for crucifixion. The Roman author Cicero wrote, The mere idea of the cross should never come near the bodies of Roman citizens, never pass through their thoughts. C.S. Lewis points out that the crucifixion did not become common in art until everyone who had seen a real one had died. So why did the cross become our brand? I mean, why not the empty tomb or crown? Why not a why not a dove? I mean, here's this struggling movement, persecuted, scattered, poor, doing anything they can to spread the good news of life, the good news of a kingdom of God here and now, doing anything they can to invite people into community with them. And the logo they choose to be recognized by is a symbol universally understood to represent pain and rejection and death and failure and humiliation. Who in the world thought that was a good idea? Well, I don't know. Apparently, the Apostle Paul did. In Galatians 6.14, he wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, what Paul was saying is we celebrate Christ crucified. Man, I, I don't know about you, but part of me cringes when I put those three words together, celebrate Christ crucified. It's a 
mysterious wonder that they could be put together in the same sentence and still have meaning. Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood, groaning, scourging, beaten, black eye, split lip, ridicule, scorn, a crown of thorns pushed down upon his head, blood running down his face, spit expelled upon his face. Listen, listen as the crowd chooses the murderous Barabbas instead of Jesus. We celebrate Christ crucified. His own cross falls upon his own shoulders to carry through the town with the help from a man named Simon. They come to the garbage dump called Golgotha, shoved to the ground, arms stretched across the beams. A a soldier presses his knee against his forearm and a nail against his wrist. He's lifted up for all the world to see. And then the sin comes. It, it descends upon him like a black cloud. All the physical suffering in the world could not compare to the inner pain, the disgust, the despair, the experience that comes as the sins of the world, past, present, future, settle upon his soul. The slimy coating of sin celebrate Christ crucified. I want to make something clear <laughs> If you take Christ out of the equation, there's no celebration. No one with an actual heart would ever celebrate crucifixion. So what is it about the cross? What do we celebrate in the cross? The cross is full of deep meaning. What what was accomplished at the cross was wonderfully, amazingly life-changing. In the cross, we... We celebrate the power of God. We, it was a spiritual battle won by Jesus' sacrifice. In, in the cross, we celebrate the forgiveness of sin. Jesus paid a ransom price for us. In the cross, we celebrate reconciliation through the cross. Paul says in Ephesians that we have been adopted into the family of God. But you know what? For me personally, at least, in, in so many ways, the message of the cross is all about the amazing love of God. In fact, let me tell you one of my favorite cross stories. It was told by Jesus. It's found in Matthew 13, verse 44. It says this, Jesus once described the kingdom of heaven like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Short story. (laughs) But imagine this. He's walking alone on a hot afternoon, walking stick in hand. He seems to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he's done so for a while. Boots covered with dust, clothes stained with sweat, pressing matters at home, keeping him from taking a rest and leave him looking for a shortcut. He veers off the path through a field. The owner won't mind. Hikers are permitted this courtesy. As he walks, he trips over an uncovered tree root. It's somewhat embarrassing to be walking one moment and resting your cheek on the ground the next. Luckily, no one's around to see him fall. But as he pushes himself up, he notices the reflection of a slice of sunlight, something buried between the roots of the old tree. He he pokes and scratches and forces his hand into the crevice, feeling something hard but hollow, not a rock. He starts digging. Ten minutes later, he can see the corner. Thirty minutes later, he has a hole large enough to draw it out. It's a small chest. By appearances, it's it's been buried for decades. Heart racing, palm sweating, pressing matters. Forgotten, he breaks the rusty lock, opens the lid, revealing a greater treasure than he ever imagined. Holding in his hand precious stones, diamonds, rubies, gold coins minted decades ago. 
He tries to imagine some wealthy man who must have buried the case and died suddenly, taking the treasure's location with him to to the grave. What, what does he do? He, he closes the lid, reburies the treasure, marks the spot in his mind, and and turns for home. Only now, it doesn't look like he carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. It looks like he's walking on air. In fact, if you look closely, you'll notice he occasionally breaks out into skipping like a little kid, huge smile, thinking, I can't believe it. Such amazing treasure. I've, I've got to have it. What do I do? I, I can't just take it. That's stealing. I know whoever owns the field owns what's in the field. I'll buy the field. Can I afford it? Hmm. My car, I can do without my car for a while. My computer, my TV, I'll, I'll do a garage sale, but that won't be enough for this field. I can sell all my football cards. That won't be enough. I can cash in my CD, sell my stock, sell that vacation, vacation timeshare. Will that be enough? No, I'm going to have to liquidate everything I own and then work hard to earn to save the rest. But if I do, I think I can buy it. And from that moment on, his life changes. The treasure captures his his imagination. He dreams about it at night, works for it during the day, sells everything he has and saves everything he can. His friends, even some of his family, quite can't quite understand what he's doing. This, this field that he wants to buy just doesn't seem to be all that special. It's just another field, surely not worth all that you have. Perhaps, perhaps listen, there's more to life than this field. Until the day comes when he has what he needs and he pays the price and the treasure is his. Now, typically, that story is used as an encouragement to pursue Jesus at all costs. But I'll never forget a, a year or two ago, God drew me to that description of the kingdom of heaven. And I, and I just, I sensed him saying, this is what I did. This is what I did for you. When you celebrate Christ crucified, you celebrate the day that Jesus gave all he had to pay the price to buy the treasure in the field. And you are that treasure. Do you hear me? Listen to me. I'm I'm speaking to you. God is speaking to you. If you're listening, you are the treasure. You were bought with a price, Paul says. And the cross is a reminder of the untamed love of Jesus. He does love you. Do you know that? Do you, do you know that you matter to God? You matter more than you think you do. For some of us, that's good news. It warms your heart. Some of us need to be reminded for other, others of us, God's love is something we thought about. It's something we believed in from a distance. It's something we've watched others experience. You've heard that God loves people, that he cares for you, but you've never really felt that love yourself. It, it, it's one thing to watch it from a distance. It's another thing to know it up close. You have to come close to the fire if you want to be warmed. You have to draw close to the stream if you want to be refreshed. And you have to draw close to the cross if you want life. Let me read the last part of the scripture we read a few moments ago, Mark 15, 10 through 20, from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. Pilate knew by this time that it was sheer spite that the high priest had turned Jesus over to him. But the high priest by then had worked up the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas. Pilate came back. So what do I do with this man you call king of the Jews? They yelled, nailed him, nail him to a cross. Pilate objected, but for what crime? But they yelled all the louder, nail him to a cross. Pilate gave the crowd what it wanted. It set Barabbas free and turned Jesus over for whipping and crucifixion. 
The soldiers took Jesus into the palace called the Praetorium and called together the entire brigade. They dressed him in purple and put a crown plated from a thorn thorn bush on his head. Then they began their mockery. Bravo, king of the Jews. They banged on his head with a club. They spit on him and knelt down in mock worship. And after they had had their fun, they took off the purple cape, put on his own clothes back on him, and then they marched out to nail him to the cross. Jesus, I I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that if there's anybody here who doubts your love, that, that if there's anybody here who who thinks that they are unlovable, that that it would cost too much for them to be redeemed, that, that by your Spirit, by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that you would minister to people's hearts, that each person listening, that we would all be on a shadow of a doubt, that you love us, that, that they would repeat with me right now, you love me, Jesus, you love me. You went to the cross for me because you love me. We are the treasure in the field. You gave up everything to buy us back. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gift that you gave us. We we humbly draw near to you. We surrender everything that we have to you. There's nobody more worthy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.